If you have your copies of the Word of God, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. We've been out of Hebrews for a few weeks with the Good Friday and Easter time and Palm Sunday before that, but we are back. Hebrews chapter 7, I want to invite you to look at verses 20 through 25 this morning as I read. Read along with me. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, we need a permanent high priest. The world we live in is always in a state of roller coaster. At least it's not boring, right? And it is interesting. It feels like uh, we're poised to be working towards some kind of political event come this summer, this summer coming a year from now. We'll either elect or re-elect the office of president again. Wherever you are on that political spectrum in terms of your convictions or core values, it's coming. And the intensity of the vote and all of the drama proceeding will be measured by the investments that are given by each political party and supporters therein to elect or re-elect their particular leader. They'll be picketing, canvassing, advertising, all manner of media, debates, smears, and most of all, a lot of money. A lot of finances will be poured out to get the leader that each particular political party believes in most. The effort in terms of the office and the power therein might be warranted. This kind of investment might be fair to invest this way. Four years can make a lot of difference in our country and eight years even more. Still, I think it's important as Christians to remember a principle that surfaces from our text this morning, and that is that human leadership is temporary. It's always in a state of transition. Israel had its officers, it had prophets, it had priests, and it had kings, and they would go into office, and even if they would go in for their whole lifetime, it was still, at best, temporary. The Old Testament 
shows us a theonomic government that Israel was under. In other words, a God government that the people of God would submit to. And their religion and spirituality was intimately interwoven and tied to their economics, their governing decisions. The moral, civil, and ceremonial laws were all tied together. So their sacrificial worship was also tied uniquely to how they operated as civilians and civilian life the moral laws that they would submit to or have to offer sacrifices for was always intertwined in that system. So there's somewhat of a disconnect in our country and the way we have the freedom to worship irrespective of government and pressure. We are thankful for that, but there is a little bit of a dissonance or difference between Old Testament Israel, but there's also some connection there. And I want to tie it together for a minute. Our president might, or the office of president, whoever is in that position, might be viewed more in parallel to the king role in Israel, maybe. But really, if you understand the prophet and priest and king roles in Israel and in the Old Covenant society, there was a lot of overlap, especially in times of war. Do you remember the um, sort of rushed sacrifice that Saul gave in 1 Corinthians 13.8? He gave the unlawful sacrifice that we're supposed to wait for Samuel to come. And he's like, oh, we need to fight the Philistines. We need to go in there and we need God's blessing. And so the sacrifice was offered. But all of this dynamic would be tied together. Often in wartime, a prophet would say, okay, you know, you need to go into battle and this is going to be the outcome of victory or defeat. And then the priests would sacrifice on behalf of the people of God and the kings would lead them into battle. So there's overlap. And in a lot of ways, our political leaders overlap with the legislative, judicial and executive branch in office. Our commander in chief wields a deep influence over laws, over military, over taxation, over the economy. And uh, there are laws that are morality based, which tend to tip our country towards conservatism or liberalism, right? We know all of that. Even the abortion issue that's been paramount as far as an issue has been brought up. And that lays right into the conscience of our country, doesn't it? In terms of what we do about that, how we feel about that, how we support or reject something like that. And obviously it's murder. We should reject any manner of abortion. All of that should be gone. God's morality or pagan idolatry are the two decisions that are always tied together to even our office of commander in chief and our governing Authorities. It's a litmus test in one sense for who is in office. But as Christians, we still nevertheless need to keep all things political and in terms of human government in the proper biblical balance that says no matter who is in office, it's temporary, it's a transition. Our kingdom down here on earth is always in flux, always in transition. In contrast to an eternal kingdom with an eternal king, everything's always changing. I was in a classroom down the hallway um, in the week, a week or so ago, and I was just with one of my kids, and I was noticing the cardboard um, little poster of all the different presidents from Washington to Obama. 
That's all who were displayed. There was a, uh, a hand-drawn picture of our most current president, but I'll leave that just to your imagination. But I was noticing some of the parallels in the, in the cardboard displays. You've seen them, the facial expressions of seriousness and the dress. And there was a lot of commonality with each president up to the most recent last three or so presidents that are more smiling and smirking. But nevertheless, there's a seriousness to the office, a seriousness in terms of dress. There's a lot in common. But what all of these presidents have most in common is change. It's just here and gone. I was remembering who was in office when I was born in 1972. Does anybody know? That was Nixon. So Nixon was in office. The first president that I remember was Ford. I remember his poster being up on a light pole and us, you know, sort of lobbying for that as a, as a little four-year-old going, oh, you know, but then there's this guy, Jimmy Carter, and he won. I remember all of that. But everything just changes. Our culture changes. Even the hard press of liberalism in our culture is being held in check in pockets that I see with conservatism, where conservatives are saying, look, your agenda, agendas that are liberal are inconsistent. They're even contradicting themselves. Outcomes that you want with liberalism is confusing, and you're, you're beginning to fight amongst yourselves. In a world like this, Christians have one of the greatest blessings that you could have, and that is the stability of knowing that Christ is your permanent high priest. He is our leader. He's a king, he's a prophet, and here in this text, we're going to talk about him as our priest. The priests in the Old Testament were the lifeline to the people when they would sin. It was the go-between. It was the help. It was a temporary help. When you would sin, you would try to make things right spiritually with God through obeying the sacrificial ceremonial system. They were the intercessors. And they were thankful for them, but they were only at best temporary. God is not temporary. He is eternal. Psalm 46.5 says, God is in the midst of her She shall not be moved, meaning the nation of Israel. God will help her when morning dawns. Listen to this verse, verse six. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The gospel is permanent. Our king, our prophet, and our priest has no term limit. So are you trusting in temporary saviors or are you gonna trust in... Our Savior, Christ is our leader, and he's permanent. So here's the principle. A permanent priest is a permanent Savior. It's what you get in this text. You get a permanent priest who is saving you to the uttermost, to the uttermost. And both of these ideas go together. Verses 20 and 24, let's open this because I want you to see why this matters. What does it mean that Christ is our high priest? And we've gone over this over the weeks, but it's an important concept to grasp. Christ is your mediator. He is God. He is truly God and truly man as the bridge between human believers and God as God himself. He's the bridge. He intercedes for you. He provides salvation as the sacrifice and then an ongoing advocacy. As you sin, 
He is defending you. He stands for you for all of eternity based on the sacrifice of Christ, which means your sins are gone. His offering, unrepeatable. It was once for all. In contrast to the yearly offering of the Day of Atonement, his intercession is perfect, is solid, filled with integrity. The rabbis of during the time of Hebrews would espouse a false teaching that, that our intercessors were angels through some sort of mystical intercessory work. That's why Hebrews 1 is saying, no, Christ is superior to angels. People today in Christianity, in the name of Christianity, use religion wrongly as a form of catharsis. Some sort of almost like an old covenant system where you're going back for a fresh cleansing over and over again. When you need to realize that you are cleansed, it's over, right? Your sins are gone as believers. They're buried. They're forgotten. They're removed. They're paid for. That's our status because of this intercessory ministry of Christ. It's based on his past sacrifice with ongoing effects in the present with a commitment throughout an eternal future for us. First Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Permanent priest means a permanent savior. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Christ comes with an oath. Everybody that precedes Christ as high priest had no oath. What's the significance of this oath? It's a biblical oath. It's it's rooted in the Old Testament. It was speaking of how Christ's priesthood is from the line of Melchizedek, which means it supersedes all of the old covenant system, all of the priests that went before. He comes with an explicit confirmation, and that is to our benefit. Christ didn't need this confirmation, but it was given for all of us to see. God's word is, is God's character, which is Completely trustworthy. God never lies. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of God's word is truth. Titus 1, 2. God who never lies. Christ comes with an oath. And there was a necessary change that this oath brought about. There was an old covenant system, verse 12. But there is a necessary change from the law, from the old covenant to the new. Look down at verse 23. It says the former priest were many in number. But if you compare that to verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath. You have all the former. There were many, 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 many people who could have been propped up idolatrously like we would prop up a human leader in our government today. Looking to temporary saviors instead of the one true savior. That's the point. And this oath comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. You see it in verse 21, a portion of Psalm 110, verse 4. As one theologian put it, every word from Psalm 110, verse 4, is ransacked by the author of Hebrews for its significance. The oath is this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and what I just quoted, 
This speaks to the Lord's immutability. Immutability is just simply this. God cannot and will not change. He doesn't change. You say, what about where in the Bible it talks about God changing his mind? Like when Nineveh was doomed for their sins and the Lord sent Jonah and lifted the doom sentence for a time. What about the wilderness children wandering in the wilderness? They were doomed for their idolatry. Moses interceded and said, God, based on your own character, do not wipe them out. These are human-like characteristics attributed to God where it says God changes his mind or God relents. He's just acting in human-like ways for us to understand him. But really, that was God's will all along. God's will is decretive. It's perfect. It doesn't change. It stands. The Lord's right arm is mentioned. That's an anthropomorphism. It's a human-like characteristic. God being pictured as having eyes. Now, I'm not talking about the humanity of Christ here, but where there are pictures of eyes um, coming from God. Well, John 4, 24 says God is spirit. So he doesn't have a body like us. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have hands and arms and a mouth and an ear. But these are These are human pictures for us to connect with so we can connect with God, what he is like. High priests from the tribe of Levi, they would come and go, but Christ is forever and his purpose would always stand. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. So it it was promised from the past in this way. You are a priest forever. Permanence, promise from the past. But then in verse 22, there is a promise of Christ's permanence in the present. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's the significance of Christ being permanent or guaranteed? It comes in terms of your relationship to him. Don't you want to know that he's always there? Isn't that the promise of the Great Commission? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't you want to know that you have a high priest in heaven that, according to 1 John 2, is your advocate before the Father? Don't you want to know that he spans the distance between heaven and earth for you personally? That's what is being displayed here in verse 22. He's your guarantor. He's your surety. He's putting himself up as bond for you. He's saying, I'm putting my whole reputation on the line to say that I'll always be there for you. It's a better hope. It's a better covenant. It's a better promise. It's a better sacrifice. It's a better substance, a better country, a better resurrection. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the high priest. This is the resounding theme of the book of Hebrews. He's better. But what does this mean practically? It means that you have the best possible promise that's given to your heart for you to know that Jesus is always going to be there with you and for you throughout your lifetime, throughout whatever you go through or are going through. Jesus Christ is there. He's permanently there. Always. It's an important promise to have embedded into our minds. It's guaranteed success that that the gospel is true and the gospel works. 
Psalm 23, 4, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Believers should know and enjoy this relationship. Listen, in the new covenant, we're not under a temporary system, temporary laws, temporary sacrifices, temporary leaders. We are under an eternal leader where we obey because our hearts have been changed to love this leader. Romans 13, the law of love. We obey the law of God out of love. And we obey because we know he first loved us, right? That's why we love him. It's all bound together in love, a guarantee. I know practically speaking, I'm glad sometimes to have something called overdraft guarantees, right? I mean, in banking, you always want that. You want to know the money will be paid. You know, uh, bail is put up for prisoners to guarantee that a prisoner will appear in trial. What truly motivates a family member is unconditional guarantee that you are loved, right? If you want to unmotivate a child or demotivate a child, put, put your love relationship on the line in terms of their obedience or disobedience. It doesn't work. A child or a teenager or even an adult within a family who knows they are loved unconditionally, unfailingly, will bring out the best in him or her. Is that not true? unconditional love. This is the permanence and the commitment of our high priest to us. We are loved unconditionally. He's put himself up as collateral for us. It is inviolable. Nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Genesis 43 and 44 tells a story that I'll just sort of tell for you. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob, the father who was home, whose also name is Israel. He's home. He had lost Joseph. He thought Joseph had died. His brothers had lied about that. And then Joseph became second in command as viceroy under Pharaoh in Egypt. There were famines. And so with the famine in the land, food was necessary for survival. You have the, the brothers that are coming to retrieve food from Egypt that in God's providence are being face-to-face with the brother that they had betrayed. And Joseph uh, remains in disguise for a period of time through this to teach the brothers a lesson and find out where they are and to find out about Benjamin, the new youngest brother that Joseph never knew. So you have Jacob's sons who are preparing to go to Egypt to get grain the second time for their starving family. Judah reminded his father Jacob that the Egyptian ruler, which is brother Joseph, uh, that they didn't know that was Joseph, but he was requiring that their youngest brother Benjamin be brought to Egypt before more food could be given. So Joseph is being sneaky here. He's saying, look, if you want more food, you got to bring Benjamin to me. It's all a big test. Judah, um, one of the brothers offered himself to his dad. He said, look, I got to bring Benjamin to get food because we're starving. All our families are starving. And the dad is heartbroken because he lost his baby once and he doesn't want to lose Benjamin. So he's just ripped in two. So the only way that Jacob would give his son Benjamin up to go to Egypt was if, was when Judah put himself up as guarantor. This is what he said. He said, This is Judah. He said, I will pledge, this is Genesis 43, 9. I will pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
So the father, Jacob, reluctantly let Benjamin go. After receiving more food from Joseph, they're headed home. Oh, the caravan needs to stop. The police have come. On the way home, Joseph, having concealed his own silver cup or goblet in Benjamin's food sack, meant Benjamin would not come home. Dismayed and grieved at what the loss of Benjamin would do to his father, Judah again offers himself. He offers himself again as a guarantee or guarantor for his brother because he knows that his father will not survive the loss of a second youngest son. He offers himself after a lengthy explanation, Joseph, between Joseph and Judah, Judah said this, Genesis 44, 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain, meaning himself, instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is a picture of the gospel. Do you see how Judah is a picture of Christ? That's the level of heartfelt love he has for you. Jesus put himself on the line for you. It's so difficult, I think, sometimes within our own sinfulness to remember how specifically Christ's love is toward you, how much he knows you, how much he cares for you. This is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ. Judah promised himself as surety a second time so he could uphold his first commitment to his father, going to any length so that Benjamin would return home. Paul did the same thing with the runaway slave Onesimus. Remember, we went through the book of Philemon. Onesimus was the runaway slave. He had somehow connected with Paul in Rome on a, a long, you know, across, across the water journey to get to, to get to Paul somehow. Paul led him to Christ, grew him, and was so in, just, just caught up with um, affection for Onesimus that when he sent Onesimus home to make it right with his owner Philemon, this is what he said, Philemon 1, 18 and 19, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self. So obviously Paul also pulled the heartstrings there with Philemon. You also owe me your salvation, but I will pay for any wrong that he's done against you. Our mediator, he guarantees our eternal life. Well, not only is the permanent high priest position promised in the past, it's promised in the present as our guarantee, guarantor, and then it's promised in the future. Verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood Permanent because he continues forever. He's introducing why we can't trust a temporal priesthood to be saved. It's simply this. Temporal priest kept dying off. If you trust in a man as a temporal savior for any means whatsoever, attaching yourself to a spiritual leader, attaching yourself to a parent, attaching yourself to, to a certain friendship, attaching yourself to a political leader for some kind of spiritual salvation or some kind of catharsis or cleansing in your own life, it's not going to work out. The number one disqualification for a 
priest being a permanent priest is that they died. That's what he's saying. They were prevented by death. There were many of them, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were disqualified to be the permanent priest. Numbers 20, 23 through 29 is another Old Testament little little window into this. It tells of the story of Aaron. You remember Aaron, who was the first high priest, right-hand man to Moses. He was the progenitor of the priesthood and all the succeeding priests followed within the Aaronic line. He was about to die. God commanded Moses to bring Aaron and his son and successor Eliezer to Mount Hor in view of all the people. And God reminded Moses that Aaron, like Moses himself, would also not be allowed to go into the promised land. So the scene is emotion filled. The people of Israel, the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses has disqualified himself as the giver of the law of God. The one who is a friend of God, he doesn't get to go into Earth's, Earth's version of heaven on, on earth here. He doesn't get it. And neither does Aaron, who's the picture of the priesthood. So if the human giver of the law and the human progenitor of the priesthood are both going to die on Mount Hor to picture the impermanence of the priesthood and the impermanence of the old covenant law system. Numbers 20 and 28, it says, And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Focus here is on Aaron's death. It was going to be a dying priesthood. Aaron's death and Moses' death, they present impermanence. Eleazar died and then Phinehas succeeded him. Joshua 24, 33, Eleazar, the son of Aaron died. They buried him at Gilbea, the town of Phinehas, his son, which has been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So you have Aaron, Eleazar, Phinehas, the priestly succession continues. And when any priest died, the scripture always says, and he died. It's always recognizing death. It's just a cycle of people live and die. Josephus, the early church historian, said there were 83 priests who served in succession to Aaron with the first temple. And then when the, that temple was destroyed, there was a second temple. And under the second temple, there were about 300 priests who served there, the lesser priests. In a word, this is all transience. We live in a world of transience. We live in a city that is very transient, right? This is like a it feels like a college um, forum sometimes because you're only here for four years. You know, I, I get you for a little term, a, a little military stint, or, you know, you're here with an, with an oil company or something. Some of you are here for life, but some and many are here for a little while. And that actually spreads the gospel out. You hear the gospel. Hopefully you hear it from this pulpit in other ways, and you spread it in other places around the world, around our country. And so God uses that, but there's a lot of transplanting and a lot of transience. Health is not guaranteed. Religious movements trend. Employment changes. Relationships are constantly in flux. flux. In three years, you know, if you've lived long enough and had your head up and looked around in three years, your life can be dramatically different than it is right now where you sit, right? Dramatically different. One thing will not change. It's Christ. That's the message. 
Permanent high priest means permanent salvation. One thing will not change, that is Christ. He is our solid rock. We all need this grounding and regrounding in our lives. A contrast to the culture, we have a priest who does not pass away. Look at verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently. The word permanent is the word um, Arabatos, which means unalterable or non-transferable. It will not pass away. It's inviolable. It's a legal term used by a judge, meaning it's an unalterable adjudication. It belongs to one person. It can't be placed on anybody else. It's permanence. A medical writer could say, I'm writing a scientific law. This is like the law of gravity in a physical sense. One person said it this way. He said, Jesus is the one who is ever opening the door to friendship with God and is forever the great servant of mankind. Christ's office of permanence is also seen here as eternal. It's forever. Jesus never had a beginning and never had an end. He's the eternal son. You say, well, what about when he physically died? Yes, as fully human, he died and rose again to secure his permanence as our high priest. So both in his full deity and in his full humanity, his priesthood remains forever. It continues forever. That word continue, mainane, is the same word for abide, like John 15, abiding in Christ. It speaks of persevering. James 1, the idea of persevering to the end. That marathon language, Jesus is, is always going to be there for us, always pleading our case, never stopping his race. So what does this practically mean? Verse 25, that brings us to kind of the point A permanent high priest means that you are permanently, let me broaden that term, you are comprehensively saved. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Stop there. This almost sounds like a condition in verse 25. He's able to save. He's dunamis. He's empowered to save. Consequently, because of all of what was said before, because he's a permanent priest from the past, from a ancient oath in the present as our guarantor and in the future as someone who is permanently our priest that continues forever, past, present, and future. So consequently, on that basis, he's able to save to the uttermost. But here's the qualification. Those who draw near to God through him. That sounds like a condition. Well, the point here is that the gospel is exclusive. It's not inclusive. The gospel is not inclusive. Jesus' love is as wide as we could fathom, but it's given specifically to those who come through him to God, period. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father but through me. It's only, only, only through Christ. That's where the power of the gospel is, by the way. If you want to preach a powerful, now, the only gospel, but, a, but a, the only gospel is the only one that's powerful, then you have to specify that there is no other way to heaven but through Christ. He's it. 
It's a narrow road. It's like a turnstile. You have to clink. Don't you hate going through turnstiles? But you have to go through Christ. You can't go through any other means to be saved. Christ alone. You want your relationship with the Lord to warm up. Meditate on that reality. Tell Jesus that you are the only Savior. You're my only hope. Period. So how can a condition like this be put on the gospel? Well, it's not a a works condition. It's just a reality. Semi-Pelagianism, which is a false teaching that combines your faith with grace in terms of it being like a work, is wrong. We can't spark salvation. Ephesians 2 says, 2.1 says, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. One person put it, you are before, before you come to Christ, you are face down on the bottom of the ocean spiritually. You're dead in your sins. And so the spark comes when God awakens you with regeneration. And then you are believing and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. But the point of this idea that you have to come through Christ is a requirement in the sense that those that God saves, those that God brings to life are those who only come near to God through Christ. That's how you put it together. Drawing near through him. Well, how does this work? Well, for an unbeliever, it's a challenge. And for a believer, it's an exam. The unbeliever if you're under the hearing of my voice and you've never come to Christ, if God is moving inside you right now, this is what it'll feel like. You know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. I've tried to get to God other ways. I've tried to, you know, climb to him through achievement, self-achievement, or through some kind of other mystery religion or, you know, kind of by any means possible, and nothing has worked. And so really the only way to get to God is through Christ. That's what this challenge does to someone when you look at that verse. So to draw near to God is to go through Christ. I want to leave the instability of this chaotic, shifting sands culture Step off the ride and come to Christ. Well, for a believer, it's an exam. The spirit of examination here is to say either, yes, I've done that or no, I have not done that. Yes, you say, okay, I'm a believer. I have only come through Christ to draw near to God and I have assurance. Or you might sit sit here and say, you know what? I thought I was a believer, but no, I came another way. John 10, 1 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man's a thief and a robber. You, you could be sitting here and say, you know what? I, I have duped myself into thinking I was right with God, but I'm really not right with God. I'm really not safe. I really don't know the eternal high priest. I really have not yet learned how to enjoy access to God with someone who's not going to let me down. I've faked myself out. That being the case, this exam becomes the challenge. You then go and say, okay, I failed the exam. I'm not really a believer. And so now I want to come through Christ for salvation. That's how it works. All of this is based again on the fact that 
He's permanent. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? It means to be saved comprehensively. That word pantelos, it means all and to the end. It's only used one other time, and that was in the story of the woman who was bent over who needed to be straightened to the uttermost in Luke 13, 11. She could not fully straighten herself. She could not fully come pantelos. Remember in the Bible, Christ's miracles were never half miracles. You say, what about the blind man with the mud? Well, that was to prove a point, but God's saving work is always, or his miracle work was always comprehensive. He always healed people all the way. He would restore the the withered hand all the way. He would make the blind to see. He would raise the dead fully. They weren't half raised. They weren't half miracles. They were full miracles, not mystery miracles, not maybe miracles like we see today. They were full miracles in the same way in the gospels, in acts, throughout scripture. When someone is saved, they are all the way saved. They aren't partially saved. If you are believing that you are partially saved, let me just kind of give you an FYI. You're not saved If you're maybe saved, I mean, you might not know that you're saved and be fully saved, but if you're maybe saved or partially saved, you're not saved. Do you see what I'm saying? Partial salvation is no salvation at all. We are saved in in the sense of past tense, present tense, and future tense. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin presently, and we're saved from the presence of sin in the future. So you can say, I was saved at a point in time comprehensively, and that comprehensive salvation means that I am kept and always will be saved. I can't lose my salvation in this life, and then there is an inheritance waiting for me in heaven that's a future salvation from the presence of sin. So I have been saved, I am saved, and I shall be saved. It's comprehensive. Verse 25 is ending with a statement of commitment. Look at this. It says, since he always lives to make intercession for them, we come to him, we draw near through Christ. Why? Because his commitment to us is he's always living to make intercession. He's always living to intercede. Romans 8, 26 and 27 talks about the spirit interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8, 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know what that means? That means between the father, the son and the Holy Spirit, when we pray and we try to take up intercessory work with people and pray for people and our mind wanders or we garble the prayer, and we don't really know what to say. We're writing it out. We're praying a psalm. We're working on it. We're working language out. We don't know how to pray in terms of someone's future. Uh, Lord, save them. Lord, heal them. We don't know your future. We don't know the future. We're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. We don't understand. God, what does your word say? Lord, help me to pray. Let me lay it on the line. I'm Wait, I'm falling asleep during prayer. I can't stay awake, right? Okay, I'm back. I mean, all of that is going on. And as we exercise our feeble prayers and do the best we can praying for people, knowing we're supposed to be praying. We're prompted to pray. We deny that prompting. We're called to pray by the word of God to pray without ceasing. We fail. What does God do? It says that God is interceding for us while we pray. He takes our prayers that are 
our verbal language and interprets them within the spirit's will and the spirit of God, like two gears meshes things together. And suddenly our prayer is praying according to God's will in the mystery of his work. You know, Christ who is perfect, who prayed perfectly, still wrestled in his humanity at Gethsemane, right? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's gears meshing. That's an inner Trinitarian um, version of that. But as believers, God helps us in our weakness and corrects and meshes. I almost want to say perfects. He puts our prayers right in alignment with his will somehow in the mystery of the kingdom. How does this work? There was an ancient preacher, Chrysostom, who said this. This will help us. The great fourth century preacher provides a helpful analogy. There was a young boy whose father was away on a trip. The little boy wanted to present his father with something that would please him. His mother sent him out to the garden to gather a bouquet of flowers for his father. The little boy gathered a sorry bouquet of weeds as well as flowers. But when his father returned, he was presented with a beautifully arranged bouquet for the mother had intervened removing all the weeds. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does. He removes the weeds of our prayers. That's what Christ is doing to help us. Christ builds the bridge between our sin and salvation. He bridges the gap between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. We're saved to the uttermost. So what does this have to do with politics? Let me just bring it back around for a second. Are we supposed to get so connected to the permanence of Christ and his priesthood that we just disengage with politics? No, I don't think so. I think we have responsibility, not just as an American citizen, but to pray for our governing authorities to engage that, to be salt and light in our world. But let me just tell you this, the more that you understand the rock solid nature of your position in Christ and the permanence that Christ has in your life, the bolder you will be to face any challenge within this kingdom down here on earth. We serve and we invest in a future kingdom, but we can do that here on earth and should. Christ, he went before Pontius Pilate fearlessly. My kingdom is not of this world, but he's still engaging the politics of the moment. Paul before Felix, before King Agrippa. Our battle strategy is never to, re- to retreat, but we stand firm within this temporal world as we win people to an eternal kingdom.